Let's jump right in. We're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So we're going to recap for just a moment, but we're shifting gears a little bit today. Because where we're going today is where we've been heading for several weeks now. And it's important that we understand this. And so when we read in Romans chapter 8, Verse 6, it says, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, but is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now let me, let me preface this. We've talked about carnally and spiritually minded. There's two. Is there a third option? Not according to this. Because you are either mindful of the carnation of mankind, or you're spiritually minded. We always think of morality, when this is taught most of the time, we think of morality, we think of those things, but that's not just what it's talking about. That's important. Not doing carnal things, being a, what we call a carnal Christian, is a good thing. Don't be that. That's bad. But to be carnally minded does not just mean you're thinking impure thoughts. To be carnally minded is mean your worldview, your mind, the way you filter things is not biblical. Everything we see should have a biblical spin on it. With a framework of which we see, do you guys realize that world events, all world events are tied into end times prophecy. Some are more obvious than others. The obvious ones are where we see the fruition of said prophecy. Like, as an example, if you were around, and I don't think anybody was, but if you happened to be around at the time when Israel came back into the land, that was huge. Like, we don't get that. Because they, the majority of the church at that point did not think that that was important. Because you know why? They were thinking carnally. Why were they thinking carnally? Name one other nation that had been disbanded from its land to ever come back and reorganize as a nation again. I'll wait. There's never been one. So because they were carnally minded in their approach to prophetic things, they had discounted that because, well, that's not possible right? That's what they thought. That's what they believed. And so because of that, when it came in to happen, they're all like, huh, we never saw that coming. Less than 5%, I would say. Actually, there were books written talking about how crucial this was. Those guys were called wackos. Y'all, you're just too literal. You're just way too literal. You can't take it that way. You see, they were being carnally minded and not spiritually minded. I've got quotes, I've told you this before, from the early 1800s that I've seen where it says, everything needed for Jesus to return. Every prophecy has been fulfilled. Jesus can come at any point in time. And they were correct to a degree. He could come at any point in time. But you see, we've got to be spiritually minded. The world around us is very dark. The things that we see, we must process spiritually. In other words, biblically is really what it comes down to. So in other words, we don't get to make up our own meanings for words. We don't get to make up our own actions and the way that we do things or the reasons that we do things. I mean, I was talking about earlier about the whys of the faith. We should understand why it is that we come and do these things. We should understand why we meet on Sundays. Do you guys realize that that's not a biblical mandate? We don't have to meet on Sunday mornings. We just do. Most people have no idea why. Well, we'll talk about that if you come, you know, on this other thing. But, I mean, the thing is, is that it's not just moral or an immoral it is more so of understanding the world around us. Now, here's the third part of this. Do you guys realize that the spiritual world is incredibly active and real? We don't think about that. Because most of us have taken for granted the fact that there's this spiritual force that's going on of good and evil. I've showed you the arm wrestling picture before. Like, that stuff's happening. 
It's like in the, in the Old Testament where they said, hey, God, open up his eyes so he can see. And he looks around and he sees all these hordes of angels around him. Had no idea. Do we realize that that stuff is going on? We all nod our head, yes, yeah, I know. But we don't act like it. So it's kind of like we're come near to him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. It's the same thing in the sense that, yeah, mentally we assent that this stuff happens, but it happens other places with other people, not us. Like, when I talk about how easy it is for a believer, a true born-again believer, to be influenced, I guess, by the enemy, everybody's immediate thought is, well, that's somebody else. That's not me. But guess what? It's you. It's me. You guys realize that you have to battle thoughts every single day. I'm not immune to this because I'm a pastor. A lot of people think, oh, he must be spiritual. Yeah, I am. So are you. But I still have to deal with that. These thoughts that come in and things that are going on. I have to discern between what is good and what is evil, what is of God, what is not of God. I have to be able to discern through all of that, just like you do, just like everybody else. Do you guys realize that Kenneth Hagin was attacked by the enemy just like everybody else was? He dealt with the same stuff. He would talk about it. For some of you don't know who Kenneth Hagin is, but it doesn't matter. Great man. Pick any guy you want. They all dealt with the same thing. The difference is, is how you handle it. We have to be aware that the spiritual world is real, it's alive, and it is active whether you want to deal with it or not. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, he says, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, that I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, why did he just say this why did he talk about this he said because our ways are not carnal ways what do we think of we think of immorality when we hear the word carnal we think of the word immorality but that's not what he's referencing here he's referencing everything that comes against the knowledge of god the way that we war is not with flesh and blood it's the spirit behind the individual the man the group the area whatever it is that is going on wherever you are in this world you and i are going to basically more than likely deal with this on two fronts it is going to be as an individual first and foremost how does he attack he attacks in the mind ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 what does it say it talks about the armor of god to put the whole armor of god that should be able to stand against the wiles of the devil this individually is how you and i primarily are going to deal with him one-on-one, or perhaps we will step in a place of intercession where we are dealing with it on behalf or with somebody else. And we'll talk about some of that kind of stuff. But that's the primary area that you and I and most of the world is going to have some sort of influence and some sort of dealing. It always starts at home with us. We look in the mirror, so to speak, and say, okay, am I right? Am I wrong? Is it possible that I am off here? If everybody will just start with that, we would solve a lot of our own issues. Because some of you guys have met people who have been good, grounded Christians, at least how we would describe them, and then they kind of get off on their own, and they start coming off with these off-the-wall ideas that seem to go contrary to everything that we have been taught, we believe, anything like that. It's like, how did you get there? Well, it's this very thing. It's the method of which he attacks. He comes through the mind. So most of us are going to be influenced through the individual. Some of us are going to have an impact in a group setting. The ability to uh, bring clarity, to bring deliverance, to bring whatever the Lord may have to a group. When I say group, it could be a church. It could be just a small city. It could be something like that. 
But some of us may do that. And most of us likely won't have the influence that we are going to be spiritually at war in an area. Something that is completely um, just overrun by the enemy. There are people that do that. That are gifted in that way. Any of us could do it. What I'm saying is not that we can't. It's that we likely won't. Because most of us aren't going to travel too far from home. Do you realize that the majority of ministry throughout the times of Scripture and everything took place by individuals at home? You know the ones that we read about? The ones that left home. It's kind of like looking at somebody else's highlight reel and comparing it to your everyday life. Do you realize that your everyday life was likely what the majority of the first century Christians dealt with? They went to work. They came home. They raised their family. They influenced in the world that they were at. They influenced at work or how they were doing stuff. They would give things away. They would hear of people in need. They would help them that way. It's the same way that we should be first and foremost under everything. But there are greater opportunities, and I say greater as in more opportunities that some people will step out into. Not greater as far as necessarily like better or more important, but greater in the fact that there would be more of them. Because if you stay at home, your influence is going to be whatever circle you happen to run in. If you go abroad, your circle just enlarged. We were talking about this this morning. It's kind of weird. You know, we record every service and we put it out on podcasts and stuff. There are people that listen to it from all over the world. I don't know why. I don't know how they found it, but they do. And I will occasionally get a message from somebody in Abu Dhabi or someplace like that, and they found it. They've listened. They have questions. Some people are sincere. Hey, may I ask you a question? I'm, I found your podcast, whatever. And so I'll dialogue. It's always through Facebook. Again, I don't know how they make the connection. I've never got the Nigerian prince asking for money or anything like that yet through there, but we're waiting. So that's normally what happens. The other part is, is they say, hey, I found your podcast. I was really blessed by it. Let me tell you what I'm doing and why you should send us money to support it. We get a lot of those too. So again, those things are out there. But we have to understand this carnal mind and spiritual mind are not one and the same. And we have to be aware of the spiritual world that is all around us. Today, you guys will be influenced, both good and evil. What you do with it is up to you. We have been given the responsibility. I want to read you this quote by a guy named Irenaeus. Some of you guys are familiar with him. He's a, I think it was first century, maybe second century. I can't remember his, uh, where he was now. It says this, Error is never set forth in its naked deformity, lest, being thus exposed, it should at once be detected. But it is craftily decked out in an attractive dress, so as by its outward form to make it appear to the inexperienced more true than truth itself. Can you be more true than truth? No, you can't. It's kind of like this. And this is, again, this is one of my pet peeves. I don't know if you know this, but it is not just a mathematic impossibility, but it is a physical impossibility to give 110%. It's impossible. We need to... Take that out of our vocabulary. Because if you can get to 110%, what did we just learn? Well, that actually was the 100. You were only given 90 before, you slacker. It drives me crazy. I know that's a small thing, but I get hung up on words. What this is telling us is that error in and of itself comes looking very nice. Because if I showed up today as an example, and I said that Lucifer and Jesus were brothers, y'all would look at me. Like I'm crazy, right? How nonsensical is that? That's not true because the Bible says so. But if I slowly laid a foundation, I said, you know what? All the churches are corrupt. And I, we need a proper translation of the scriptures. And not only that, but I found these golden plates that were led to me by an angel named Mariah. And so we properly translate this and we add the Pearl of Great Price, the Doctrines and Covenants, and the Book of Mormon. Suddenly the idea 
of Lucifer and Jesus being created beings and brothers isn't so far-fetched in that world. Now, is it? They didn't start with that. They got there. You guys see what I'm saying? This is what Irenaeus was getting at, is that the error in our world does not just happen overnight. These big, audacious, nonsensical ideas that are out there, and there's a bunch, were laid piece by piece and foundational. If that's what it takes to end up at big errors, what should we do to end up at great truths? Piece by piece and foundational. We always want to start with the end, but we don't lay the bedrock that the end is put on. That's why we're doing this thing starting at the first of the year. So I want to show you something today. As we're introducing this idea of the spiritual warfare, the authority of the believer, and who we are in Christ. Remember, those four questions. Who is God? And who am I in relationship to God? And who is my enemy? Those are all bedrocks to what we're getting ready to talk about. Because you have to know who God is. And you have to know who you are in relationship to Him and the authority that He has given you. Because you and I should not walk around defeated foes. We should fear nothing, including death. Because of what Scripture says. To live is Christ. To die is gain. If you die, you gained. It's not a bad thing. But yet, believers today are petrified of death. Why? I mean, really, what are you missing out on? Because I know we'd all be like, oh, I miss my children and my family and all of that. There may be truth to that here. But up there... You'd be like, God, you got them, man. They were driving me crazy anyway. I mean, think about it. It was like I had a, 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 who was my pastor, his wife got breast cancer and died suddenly. <clears throat> and he was out in Wyoming at this point. I hadn't seen him in several years. And, and, and so um, I was just shocked, taken aback. And so we went out to the, the funeral, to the service. And he was doing the funeral. I don't know about you, but I'd have a hard time doing my wife's funeral. Because she wouldn't approve of any of the jokes that I put in there. She might haunt me after or something. That's not really how that works, just FYI, okay? But the thing, I'm thinking of the emotion and all of that. How could he do it? And I was so amazed because you know what he said? He stepped up and he said, I know we're all asking questions, me included. Why God? They believe in healing. They believe in all of that. Why God now? He says, but let me tell you something. When we get to heaven, we're not going to care. We don't care. Because now, this is reality. This is the reality. You see, it all changes. It's all perspective. And so what I want to show you today is as we get through this, we have to understand something. He said that we are in this world, but not of it. That we, don't, we are sojourners in this world. This is not our home. We are to live like Abraham. He never had a land. He kept waiting for the land. He never had it. Moses was the same point. He never got the land. They wandered around. And that is what we are. This is not our home. This is why we don't store up treasures on earth. Because who cares what you've amassed? doesn't mean we're not fiscally responsible or any of that kind of stuff. It is ultimately, it's where's your heart? It is in heaven. It is with the Lord. It, that's where we are. And so we need to understand something. The authority on this earth belonged to the enemy. It was not God. It was not man. It is believed at the time that Adam fell that the authority was now handed over. Because who did God give it to? Whose responsibility was to tend the garden, take care of it, and to expand it? It was Adam's. What did Adam do? We know what Adam did, right? He sinned. So it is believed. It does not say this clearly in Scripture, but this is a belief that is held. That in that moment, the authority of the earth was now handed over to the enemy. And with that, 
whether that was the moment or not, it seems to be implied, and I'll show you why. We're going to go over to Matthew chapter 4, and we've read this before, but I want you to catch something here. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. This is where Jesus is tempted. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted for 40 days and nights, afterward he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered, It is written, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now stop. Was it possible for Jesus to command that stones be turned to bread? Has to be. It's not a temptation. Because if you said that to me, not a temptation. You know what I can't do? I can do some things. I can't make rocks into bread. Now, I can make bread taste like rocks, but I can't go the other way around. Verse 5, then the devil took him up on the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands you shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said, it is written again, you should not tempt the Lord your God. Question, is it possible if he had thrown himself off the temple that angels would have come and caught him? Got to be possible. It's not a temptation, again, if it's not that way. And on top of that, he even used the Bible. Who would have guessed that, that the enemy can quote Scripture to you? Do you realize that every time a Scripture pops into your head and you think you've got the meaning of it, doesn't mean that it came from the Holy Spirit? Think about that. What do we do? We examine it. Okay? So it has to be a temptation. It has to be possible, or it's not a temptation. But the last part's interesting. Verse 8, again, the devil took him up on a exceedingly high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and you worship me. And Jesus said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered him. Now, here's the question. How could he make an offer to give him all the kingdoms of the world simply by bowing his heart and worshiping him if they didn't belong to him? There's no temptation, Okay? I could make you guys a heck of a deal, all right? And I'm willing to do this. Anybody step up. Stanley, I'm selling his farm. Make the check payable to me, all right? If you wrote a check, you're an idiot. And Stan would not be happy with me either. There's no temptation for anybody there. I say, for 100 bucks, I'll give you 1,000 acres. Okay, let me sign me up. Nobody's going to fall for that because they know I don't own the land. Right? I mean, that's the thing. If he doesn't have the ability, if that's not under his control, there is no temptation for Jesus to fall down and worship him. But we know Jesus was in all way tempted, yet without sin. It shows us that in Scripture. So that implies that there is something to this. Was it the moment of, of Adam's fall? I don't know. That's what is believed. That doesn't mean that's accurate. Don't really care. It is pretty obvious from this place and other places in Scripture that he did have control over that. So what do we do with this? You have to understand the enemy comes in. He tempts us with greatness. He tempts us with our ego. It is always our ego. It is always this pride that we have that we are first tempted with. And it expands upon our actions from there. Your actions may not seem as if pride. But your, uh, the way that you have believed has led to that action. If you believe that you are greater than the authorities, as an example... If you think I'm the one who can rob the bank and get away with it, guess what? You'll rob the bank. But if you believe that if I rob that bank, I'm going to get caught and thrown to jail, you won't rob that bank. The reason being is it takes a certain amount of arrogance to believe that I am the one that this won't happen to. You guys get that? So in this, it always starts with our pride. Pride puffs up. Do you guys realize that believers today deal with pride? You guys realize that unbelievers today deal with pride? Do you guys realize, you may not know this, but there are hypocrites 
outside of the church? Sometimes they're doctors. Sometimes they're lawyers. I know, that's shocking. I've had people say, you know, I'd go to church, but I don't like being with all those hypocrites. I'm like, there's always room for one more. Come on. We've got plenty of room. The thing is, is that everything that we as believers deal with is the same thing that unbelievers deal with. The separation is in the fact that every tool is, that's necessary has been given to us. And it is our responsibility to act upon said tool. We don't do it a lot of times, but that's our responsibility. So now let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5. These are all verses you're familiar with. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. It says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Now, there's a word today that we do not like to hear. Because I'm not putting myself under anybody. What if they abuse me? What if they take advantage of my kindness? What if they do this or they do that? Here's the thing. That's always gone on. What if they don't? What if your submission leads you into greater spirituality? We use discernment. There's a thing going on right now with a big church down, I think it's in North Carolina or somewhere. Well, the pastor has abused his power, has been having an affair, got caught, all of this stuff, money, all of that stuff. And people are going to read this like, that's why I don't go to church. I'm like, what about the thousands of churches that that doesn't happen in? What does that have to do with anything? Anyway, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but give grace to the humble. Is that like an option? Or is this kind of a command from Peter here? He's telling you what to do. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now watch, verse 8. Be sober and be vigilant. Why? Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Now, let's look at this for a minute. Your adversary, the one that comes against you. You know, it's very specific who he's talking about here. Don't think Lucifer. Think the enemy. The adversary. That means that it's not your neighbor, your co-worker, your mother-in-law. It's not them. It is the enemy. And what does he do? He walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. This implies something. He's not a roaring lion. He just sounds like one. And he may devour you if what? You allow it. Because what do you do? You resist him. Stay steadfast in the faith. How hard is that? It's not hard, we make it hard, right? You see, he does not have the power to do anything to you that you have not allowed in some way or fashion. That doesn't mean that bad things don't happen to good people, and we'll, again, we'll talk about all that other stuff later. But the thing is, is that we've got to understand it. we ultimately are responsible for what happens in our lives. Let me give you an example, because some of you guys look at me like, deer in headlights right now. Okay, let's talk about this culturally. What are we talking about with homosexuality today? They were born this way, right? They can't help it. The last time I checked, and I could be wrong, so if you can show me documentation of this, I'll, I'll listen to it. Everybody is in control of whom they have sex with, right? Nobody ever accidentally has sex with somebody, right? Last I checked, I don't check often. I'm afraid to Google that, honestly. I don't know what will come up. But by that same logic, that if it is true that they can't help it, then it must be true that somebody who has an affair just can't help it. They would never say that. It's the same type of thing. It's a sexual sin. So why do we get a pass there, but we won't use the same logic over here? It's because we're deceived. One gets an outcome we want. One has an outcome we don't like. That's the difference. So it's not an intellectual question. It's a 
moral question. You guys see that? You see, the enemy will come in and begin to confuse us, believers, unbelievers, all the same. And depending on who's running what and doing what, it will impact our lives one way or another. That is why we have to be so careful about what we read, and we have to discern through it. Do you guys realize that walking through a Christian bookstore, that that word Christian can be loose in the books that are in there? Because they may or may not be biblical. That is where discernment comes in. Because there are books that I have seen that have heretical statements embedded in them, and you start to look at who the author is, and you realize the foundation from where they are coming from, and you're like, my goodness, this is bad. But it deceives many people. Most of the time, it's because it's very flowery, and it feels good. That's what we're looking for. So the enemy comes in like a roaring lion, seeking whom he devours. Do you know what comes to my mind when I see this and I think about this? This is what comes to my mind. I've got a picture here. Maybe you recognize it. It's the great and powerful Oz. He had an entire nation trembling before him in fear. And if you saw that, would that not freak you out? If you wake up one night and you walk into your living room and that's what you see, let's just be honest. We might have to change our pajamas after that. I mean, there's, there's something to this. He kept people in fear through this. But that wasn't true. It wasn't reality. It wasn't grounded in anything except fear and perception. This is what it really was. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. I mean, that's essentially how the enemy moves today. I'm big. I'm powerful. But don't look back there. If he can keep us deceived, we'll never walk in the authority that we have. This is how the enemy moved. And I'm going to show you guys an example of this. We don't even realize it's happened. And we miss this because we don't know Scripture well enough. We especially don't know our Old Testament and the history surrounding it. But there are things that have happened that is an exact picture of how the enemy moves into our lives today. And we don't even realize it. Let's go over to Daniel chapter 5. We're going to camp here for a little bit. We're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read it, then I'm going to go back and explain parts of it. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. We know the whole story. This is after Nebuchadnezzar, okay? It's right after Nebuchadnezzar. New king's in power, okay? Daniel's still there. Daniel was one of the mighty men that was uh, set up by Nebuchadnezzar. But some time has passed and things have changed a little bit. So while he's still respected, the new king doesn't really know who he is. So let's start. Belshazzar the king, verse 1, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. And he drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now let me ask you something. Does this sound like a good idea? I mean, if, it, it'd be like taking grandma's fine china and say, hey, we're going to microwave pizzas on this. Like, it's worse than that, but it's not good. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been uh, taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank for them. They drank the wine, and then what happened? And praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. So they weren't just party favors. They were worshiping false gods while using the things that had been holy to the temple, which means they are set apart and consecrated. All right? Verse 5. In the same hour. The fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened, and his knees knocked against each other. This is the moment where the pants get wet. All right? 
verse 7, the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers and the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. And the king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing, it tells me its interpretation, shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be a third ruler uh, in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. Now this is a man of high authority. This man feared nobody, and yet he's trembling in fear. This is why they're astonished. But what was his immediate reaction? He turned to spiritual advisors. He recognized something spiritual was going on here, so he turned to what he knew. Was it the right place to turn? No, as we know. Verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. So now stop. There is a recognition of the Holy Spirit upon Daniel. And this is the holy God. There's a recognition of the king of kings, lord of lords aspect. He's recognizing this. They have recognized there's something unique here. They still continue to worship these false gods. There is a man in your kingdom, verse 11, who is the Holy Spirit of the Holy God, and in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting of dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will be, uh, give the interpretation. So what happened? Nebuchadnezzar put him in charge of all these mystical people. We'll just call them that. That pays out dividends at the whole nativity story, right? We see this later on. How did they know? It's because they were trained by Daniel. So, but what is the reaction? The king's immediate reaction was go to these people. They didn't go to the guy in charge because the guy in charge, had he done it from the beginning, wouldn't have needed all of this verbiage right here. He turned to what he knew, something spiritual. In other words, something spiritual has happened. Let me turn to something spiritual to get the explanation, which is the same thing we see in the world today. Now, let's go on. Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah? whom my father the king brought from Judah, I have heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, this is blowing my mind, and here's why. He knows, and everybody knew, that in Daniel, the Spirit of the living God was in him. But they didn't turn there. They turned somewhere else. Now, the wise men, the astrologers, I've been brought in before me that they should read the writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I've heard of you that you can give interpretation and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you should be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So, quite the opportunity for old Daniel here. Verse 17, Daniel answered said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. This is a bold statement. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, 
and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deeply depo- uh, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. So what caused this? It was his pride. Keep that in mind. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast. His dwelling was like the, uh, with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. So there was a curse put upon him. And if you go back and read the story, he talks about eating grass, being out in the field. He was, like, he was a wild man. They couldn't control him. He's like a donkey. He's out there. He was there until he recognized who runs things. Ultimately, it's God. Okay? Verse 22, but you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. So this is not new information. He knew what happened. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood, stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Now, how did Daniel know all of this? He wasn't there. Maybe somebody told him, but this is likely revealed to him by the Spirit of God of what was going on. And what was it? It was that pride. You were worshiping the created gods, not the creator God. There's a distinction here. Verse 24, the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, aparison. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has uh, numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And don't get too caught up on the aparison and the Paris thing. They're the same word. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So he recognized what happened. He recognized Daniel has now told us. What did he tell us? Your days are numbered. Your kingdom is finished. You've been judged. and The balance did not come out in your favor. So your kingdom has been divided and is going to the Medes and the Persians. Very specific who's going to take it over. And he did, Belshazzar did exactly what he said he would do. Look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius and Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So that very night, the execution of God's judgment took place. Should they have been surprised? No. Were they? Absolutely. But they shouldn't have been. You know why? Is every scrap of this was prophesied in advance. And if they had been listening to Daniel, they would have been aware of it. In Isaiah chapter 13, verse 17 It says, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, who will not regard silver, and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Also their bows will dash the young men to pieces, and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will be settled from generation to generation. Nor will the Arabian pitch tits there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. This is one prophecy. Look at Isaiah chapter 21, verse 9. It says, And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. And the answer said, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, and all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. I mean, this, this is all prophesied in advance. And not only that, it was prophesied that it would happen, but the man who would do it was prophesied as well. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. We're going to go into chapter 45. It says, Who says of Cyrus... 
He is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. This was prophesied 150 years before Cyrus was ever born, and his name is specified in here. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. Now this doesn't specify Babylon unless you know a little bit about Babylon. Because the gates they had were all double doors. They were all gates of bronze and they locked those gates with massive bars of iron that could not be broken. It was in an impenetrable force. Nobody could get into Babylon. And he tells Cyrus that it's going to happen with him and that God is going to allow it. Now watch. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches and secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name. Who? Cyrus. By your name. Am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no God beside me. I will gird you. Though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light, create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. I call you by name, Cyrus. And guess what? Cyrus is eventually going to read this, and he is going to give the order for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Exactly what was prophesied. 150 years before he was born. Is that powerful to anybody else? Now, let me ask you something. All of these things and these prophecies were laid out in advance. These types of things were taught by Daniel to the people. So why were they not prepared? Why did they not know? It's because they didn't want to. They didn't care. Oh, that's great. That's what that Bible says, but that has no impact in my life. Now, here's the thing, and this is where it gets interesting, is that Babylon fell and the king was killed is stated. But you know what it doesn't tell us? It doesn't tell us how. Because as I said, those bars of iron behind gates of bronze were virtually impenetrable. There's no record that I have found in Scripture of a battle. There's no record anywhere. How did they get in? How did Darius and Cyrus and all these guys come in here and take over? Was there battering rams? Did they have the catapult throwing stuff over? See, that's the thing. This is where studying history alongside your Bible really comes into play. Because there's something called the Cyrus Cylinder. I've got a picture of it here. And the Cyrus Cylinder reports that Cyrus, when he did this, um, that Marduk was the one that gave him the ability to do this. And said so this was found, okay? But... There are other ancient traditions that fall of Babylon and the Persian and Greek sources. But there's a guy named Herodotus who wrote about this. And I want to read this to you, okay? This is from his writing, one of his many writings. He was a historian. It says, Cyrus was now reduced to great perplexity. As time went on, and he made no progress against the place. So this, they were trying to take over Babylon for a while. In this distress, either someone made this suggestion to him or he bethought himself of a plan which he proceeded to put in execution. He placed a portion of his army at the point where the river enters the city, and another body at the back of the place where it issues forth, with orders to march into the town by the bed of the stream as soon as the water became shallow enough. He then himself drew off with an unwarlike portion of his host, and made for the place where uh, Natakris dug the basin for the river. 
where he did exactly what she had done formerly. He turned the Euphrates by a canal into the basin, which was then a marsh on which the river sank to such an extent that the natural bed of the stream became fordable. Hereupon the Persians, who had been left for the purpose of Babylon by the riverside, entered the stream, which had now sunk as to reach about midway up a man's thigh, and thus got into the town. Had the Babylonians been apprised of what Cyrus was about, or had they noticed their danger, they would have never allowed the Persians to enter the city, but would have destroyed them utterly. For they would have made fast all the street gates and have, uh, which gave access to the river, and mounting upon the walls along both sides of the stream, would have so caught the enemy, as it were, in a trap. But as it was, the Persians came upon them by surprise, and so took the city. Owing to the vast size of the place, the inhabitants of the central parts, as the residents of Babylon declare, long after the outer portions of the town were taken, knew nothing of what had changed, but as they were engaged in a festival, continued dancing and reveling until they learnt about the capture. Such then were the circumstances of the first taking of Babylon. So let me put this in layman's turn. I've got a map up here I want to show you. This is a map of old Babylon, not that. I should have a map. No map? Well, forget it then. It's hard to find a good tech guy, you know? I'll try to get a map for you guys another time, but the map shows how the Euphrates rivers went through the city and the gates were built around. And what they did is they re-channeled the river and sunk it to the point where it was at a man's thigh, where instead of trying to go in through the front door, they were able to sneak in secretly during the time that the party was going on. And they would sneak in there through all these viaducts and all this other stuff that was going on. And they began to slowly take over the city, so much so that the city got captured and people didn't even know it. They had no idea that this had taken place until it was too late. Now why am I telling you this? Is This is exactly how the enemy moves. It's exactly what Irenaeus says. Is he doesn't show up and say, look at me, I'm a bad idea. I'm untheological. He slowly comes in and he places these ideas. See, this is what it says, 1 Peter 5. He says that, be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But you resist him and stay steadfast in the faith. You see, that is how the enemy has crept in. He creeps in unknowing. We don't because we're not dealing with it. Because we're not discerning it. Because we have not begun to be consistent in our biblical worldview, that we have made concessions to the things that we do, the things that we say. We have not been consistent. I had a friend of mine who is a pastor, and I respect this man tremendously. But he told me one time, he said, man, if they would quit abortion, I'd give up fighting gay marriage. That's what he said. It's like, why would you give up one? That's, that, our job is not to just, let's take the worst one and try to stop it. Our job is to live on this earth as salt and light. Our job is to recognize when the enemy is coming in and these bad ideas are taking place. We have to discern the truth. We have to realize that the spiritual world around us is active and moving and trying to get you off kilter, unbelievers off kilter. Their eyes are blinded. Why does the devil come and steal the word from his heart? Lest they believe and be saved. The world around us is a spiritual one. That we have taken for granted, I heard this quote and I think it's very true, that the, the best strategy that the devil ever had was to make people think he didn't exist. Because then you'll let your guard down. And when you let your guard down, these thoughts will begin to creep into your mind. And if you don't take them captive, they will take you captive. Because you'll wake up one day and you'll be in this bondage and you didn't know what was happening, you don't know how I got here. 
and I, you don't know what to do. But if, what if we stayed on guard all the time? You've got to recognize something. We have an authority. You guys are going to hear more about this next week. I'm excited for this. We have an authority and a responsibility to use that authority on this earth. It starts with our own lives, but we also carry that everywhere we go. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it's true. And we thank you that the more that we study it and understand it and who you are and what you've done, and who we are in relationship to you, that we have a responsibility on this earth. And so, Lord, I thank you that you are giving us an ability to discern between truth and non-truth, between facts and fake. Lord, I thank you that you're giving us this ability to walk in this earth with our head held high, knowing what you have done for us. And because of that, we are with you, with your power, with your authority, Lord, with truth on our side, and that we'll never back down from it. And so, Lord, I thank you that with everything that we have, that we give glory to you. And when people see and hear from us, that they see and hear from you. And so, Lord, I thank you that you give us a boldness to stand strong in the face of, of adversity, Lord, and all the nonsense that's going out there, and that we will boldly walk in this earth the way that you have created us to be that we bring glory to you every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Oh, by the way, I didn't mention, but it's happened to be Amy's birthday if you want to give her a hard time. That would be welcome. So you have a great week.